So I thought I'd talk a little bit about the five hindrances tonight. I think I announced that last time. <laughs> yeah, this is two, two basic uh, ideas uh, or contexts which particularly brought me onto, onto this topic of the five hindrances. Uh, one is uh, the the importance of investigation in meditation. Um, we talked about that before. I mean, we, we might all have different ideas about meditation. There, there are, of course, many different kinds of meditation, and we might do different things in meditation um, depending on what we try to achieve. Uh, but certainly... Uh, in the, the Buddha's approach or the way he taught about meditation, uh, meditation is, of course, not just about becoming calm or becoming concentrated on whatever meditation object you choose. So, uh, investigation, in some form or another, is also an important uh, quality to develop and to use during meditation or during bhavana, the cultivation of the mind. Uh, for example, in the uh, in the seven factors of enlightenment, it starts with with mindfulness, which uh, we most often or usually talk about in in, in meditation cultivation of, the, for example, the four satipatthanas, four foundations of mindfulness. But then the second one is investigation of uh, dhammas, so or investigation of the dhamma. Uh, so which should, so in the in the seven factors of enlightenment, this one kind of leads to the next. So. Is almost like the uh, mindfulness, cultivating of mindfulness sets up the stage, as it were. Um, and then once we've brought, once we, we cultivated some mindfulness, then f- from that platform of mindfulness we can investigate, and then that leads on to further qualities like energy and happiness and calm and leading into concentration and equanimity in this, in this case. Mm. Also, some of you might remember. Uh, teachings by Ajahn Chah on meditation. I think this is one booklet is even called on meditation. You know, there's, there's, there's a long discourse of his in there where he talks about spe- quite specifically also about uh, investigation in meditation, even in the in the what we might consider as the most coarse form of of, of investigation, contemplation, thinking, thinking meditation. You know? Sometimes we we think that in meditation we shouldn't think. <laughs> and that, of course, uh, then our thought becomes the main enemy or, or problem, and we just try anything to get rid of thought, which is understandable enough in some ways, as you know, thought can create a lot of disturbance in the mind and just doesn't want to stop. You know, when we want to stop and all that. But it, it can, of course, also be... You just meditation, even a formal meditation session, can of course just be a very appropriate time actually to think, you know, to think consciously. Obviously, if that's the only thing that we do in meditation, then <laughs> there's always something missing. And, and there's also the difference, of course, that we have to know, have to find out about compulsive thinking, you know, and we can't stop it, or deliberate thinking in terms of investigation. That is, in fact, one of the, one of the ways in which to assess what's actually going on there in our mind uh, when we think. For example, if I have a specific problem to deal with, you know, I can use a meditation session to first maybe settle the mind so that you know, when the mind gets settled, becomes more calm, becomes more clear, then I can pick up a problem and think about it. Because obviously, if I think about it from this state, if I have achieved a state of more calm, which with, you know, with some clarity, then I can think about it also more clearly. You know? The quality of our thought is going to be determined by the quality of our mind state in which we are thinking. You know? So if I'm, um, that's, that's just common sense. You know? If I'm dealing with a problem and I'm just worrying about something and I'm just thinking, 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 and try to solve it by a bit more 
doing a bit more thinking, 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 you know, if I'm just confused and try to get, think myself out of confusion, I might just add more and more confused thoughts to it and just get more confused. So if I can put, if I can manage to put thinking aside for a while, say in meditation, de-emphasize it, do say my mindfulness of breathing, whatever I do to center the mind a bit more, and then choose to pick up that seeing the problem again, then and then think about it from you know from this new kind of platform of or that new mind state that have have arrived. I might actually notice it suddenly, and my thoughts about it are very different. Might be much clearer. Or I, I get very new perspectives on a problem. You know, it might not even appear as a problem anymore at all. For example, that would be an example for useful a way of, of using thinking as investigation in, 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 in formal meditation. Uh, or I might find I just I just start to think about it, and as soon as I start to think about it, I lose all mindfulness and just get all worried and 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 confused again. Well, that would be then the sign to then okay. This, this is not working, obviously. No? So maybe just go back to just do awareness of the, of the body, of the breath or something. We can come back and, and try later. And the same way sometimes is also, uh, like Ajahn Shah in, in his talk, I recommend it to use like in meditation sometimes to just contemplate themes, like contemplate the Dhamma, no? themes like impermanence um, or non-self. Something can be... Contemplating those themes, often we start with it sometimes by concept, with conceptual thought. And again, of course, sometimes when we first settle the mind, calm the mind, center the mind, meditation, and then pick up one of those themes, contemplate them, we might actually see things about it, see, see clearer, have uh, actually, you know, get closer to some actually genuine insights than when we just think about those things with, with, our, with the ordinary level of our attention or awareness. And the same way there, also Ajahn Chah talks about, you know, we we might contemplate this way for a while, and then if you just realize if it just gets, you know, too restless, or then, then you know, we have to balance again and just maybe cultivate some concentration. And so those things can go together. We, we have to find out for ourselves what's the right balance for us at what time. Also, you know, what we want to which way you want to go in, say, in a specific meditation. No? If you want to emphasize more centeredness, go more towards calm, then, of course, thinking is not, you know, that's not going to be our theme. You know? Or if you want to go towards contemplation, then we can move back and forth also between those two. The five hindrances would be one example uh, of, of a, a useful um, contemplation, investigation during meditation. Uh, because the five hindrances are, of course, <laughs> relevant things that, that might uh, come up in our meditation and, in fact, interfere with our meditation. And then it might be actually asked for, uh, it will be asked for to actually look at them, contemplate them, and actually find out what's actually, what's actually happening there. Right? And that, um, for example, there's, there's a particular sutta, I think, in the, in the Raguta Nikaya, where the Buddha specifically mentions that, you know, if there is a, a hindrance operating you know, in our meditation and we are not aware of it, we don't pay attention of it, then what we're doing, he actually called that not meditation, but mismeditation. We're mismeditating. You know? So that's a, a specific example. It's just, it's important then to become aware. And that's investigation, you know, to know what, what's going on there, to look at. First place, and perhaps it's also an example uh, which to say investigation. Of course, doesn't have to doesn't have to be uh, thinking. It doesn't mean that we that we think about our you know, whatever hindrance uh, there is conceptually. That might be part of it, but it's not you know, probably not going to be the main point. The first thing is is really in this case, for example, to to be aware, to know that that it, that this is there. That requires a certain kind of Attitude, no? certain kind of quality of mind. It requires more than just the intention of being with, my, with the breath and trying to be calm. It requires some curiosity. No? That, that, that attitude, that intention of investigating, of wanting to know, you know of, of actually actively allowing some you know, intelligence to operate there that, that actually um, picks up that there's actually something going on here, which, what is it? We might call it um, a hindrance, no? 
and, and it might lead to some also kind of verbal contemplation of what's going on there. But of course, if we, we don't even always need to label things like that, you know, if you're familiar with those things, uh, then sometimes we just, we know those things intuitively, isn't it? We don't have to spell those out. And we might also know how to, how to work with them. Uh, like the five hindrances, if you bring them to mind, of those of you who, who don't know them, the common, most common, perhaps, English translations of those that I'm aware of, it's, uh, the first is, is sensual desire. Second one, aversion, or sometimes translated as ill will. Third one is uh, sloth and torpor. And uh, fourth one is uh, restlessness and, and worry. And the fifth one is doubt. No? So I, I'm almost sure we're all familiar with them, and, and, and with all of them, you know, in, in some way. And, and, and that's interesting to, to look at those and to know also, like, what is actually in a particular meditation, is any of those predominant? Or to know, that's part of the investigation in, in meditation and to, to become more, more skilled and subtle in, um, in meditation, to learn about ourselves, what are actually the, the hindrances that we usually have to work with in meditation? Hmm? The Buddha gave five uh, similes, similes for, to, to, to illustrate how those feel like. Um, I'll see if I remember. I think the, the uh, sensual desire, it's like if you say, well, first of all, maybe to say the five hindrances, they, they're called hindrances, I say, because they, they, they hinder the proper functioning, the clear functioning of the mind. No? So you can look at that on various levels. That's, in, in, of course, happening in everyday activity and consciousness, no, whatever kind of impedes just the, the, uh, the clarity of the mind, clear understanding or ease of being you know, with our experience. Uh, one way in which what comes, say, in between, in, in the way between our experience and, and you know, our awareness, what could be called those five hindrances, those five ways. You know? And maybe you could, we could come up with others. You know? And to a certain extent, I would imagine this is, is kind of arbitrary, you know, to use those five, in effect, if you look at it, it's really seven, isn't it? Because one is sloth and torpor. Now, I'm not quite sure what the difference would there be in my mind. That's more or less the same. English is also not my first language. But restlessness and worry, I guess to me, those are perhaps really slightly different, we might think of, you know. But the Buddha groups them together, and there's perhaps also a reason which I, which the simile, perhaps, um, which I'm going to give you in a moment is, is, is perhaps illustrating. But so in, in our everyday functioning of the life, but also it's of course what specifically the Buddha mentions this as a hindrance in meditation. No, it's what, say, if it, either, again, um, a hindrance to insight or clarity, no, it was ob- obscures our intelligence and our clear seeing, and also concentration, hindrance to concentration. No? It's also specifically mentioned, the five hindrances in, in like the... Uh, as hindrances to the development of deeper absorptions, you know, the jhanas, deeper concentrations. Those uh, five hindrances would be what needs to be overcome in order for the mind to actually become so radiant and at ease that it will, ease, will naturally kind of stay with, settle on our meditation object and in fact absorb into them. And maybe that's what some people say. Uh, that's why they are grouped as five because there are, of course, also five jhana factors that the sutta thought about. So sometimes people... Um, will correlate also, you know, the five hindrances to the five jhana factors, but I, I won't go into this one now. Um, anyway, we have those five, and so the, the Buddha's similes are for um, sense design. Uh, again, <laughs> so, so to explain the similes, like, first of all, he says, it's like if you imagine, um, like, the mind, the clear mind in, in say, meditation, like, like water, surface of water that is clear in which your, your face would be uh, clearly reflected. So you look into the water, and that's a beautiful image in a way that the Buddha applies in various places, like for meditation, isn't it? The, the mind settles, becomes calm, becomes clear, when, so that insight can actually happen. It's like looking into a clear uh, pool of water, so then uh, you, you, you can see what is in the water very clearly. You know? And in this case, you use the image of the reflection. You get a clear reflection of your face when you look into it. It's like a mirror. Not a mirror-like mind. So the five hindrances would be five ways in which this would be disturbed, would be made impossible, or the reflection will be distorted. 
because the mirror isn't calm and clear. It's not a mirror like mind. When the five hindrances, uh, any of the hindrances operating, uh, we haven't got a mirror like mind. That's for sure. <laughs> There's going to be some distortion in our seeing. No? So sense desire, he, he says, is like there being dye in the water. So it's colored. So that's in a way like if we are affected um, or minus affected by sensual desire, it's like we like we, we look look through a colored lens. You know, our perceptions of things are kind of colored by our desire, or specific desire that we have. You know, we don't see things um, clearly in an objective way in that sense. Um, for anger or ill will, aversion, he uses uh, the image of the water being heated, being a bit like boiling to the point of boiling. So there's all kind of bubbling, and, and so of course you don't, can't see anything very clearly. And of course it's very obvious, you know, the, the 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 correlation of, you know, we all sometimes speak about boiling with anger. You know, you know how that feels. You know, this is really kind of welling, bub- bubbling up. You can't see clearly then, and it's also something that's like bubbling over. You no, know? it's kind of something's pushing out, taking you over. Sloss uh, and torpor also seems very clear. It's like if the pool is kind of covered over with algae. You know, there's plants you can't you can't see clearly. You know, it's just all covered. Restlessness and, and worry. Um, the Buddha used the image of water being agitated by wind, and uh, that's maybe also the the why you know they group together. In my mind, I don't know this for you. So like worry, generally applies more to a mental agitation, isn't it? We're worrying about something, usually about the future, or something in the past, which then, you know, makes us worry about, of course, the outcome of, of maybe our past deeds in the future. So it's a mental agitation. And restlessness, well, I can include that, but it's also more, it's maybe it's a more general term. But both of it's like there's agitation, isn't it? We're not settled. So it's like agitated water by the wind. And the last one, doubt. So similarly, the Buddha uses like... Um, muddy water, water that is that's that's obscure, that's that's cloudy, like by mud. So it's dark; you can't really see anything, and it doesn't reflect anything back. So it's, you don't see. I find just looking at it this way, like having an image, it's, it's one way of seeing that we don't necessarily always have to have a conceptual relationship to those uh, hindrances. We can feel if those. those those images, one of the good things, is they give us a, a feeling for those hindrances, you know, for the texture. And that's a, the one way in which we can detect, of course, and notice those hindrances in ourselves. We don't have to think about necessarily a lot, but we feel that in the quality of our attention in the meditation. Uh, I mean, how do you know? We, you usually don't have to think about... Sometimes you might have to, it might be useful, you know, what's happening there. If you are angry, you know, you know, and you know by how it feels, how it feels in the body. And in the mind, maybe all things go together. Same for the other hindrances. And um, the interesting thing is, in 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 at least in in medita- particularly in meditation, often in, in what perhaps in general with those hindrances, like with many things, but particularly in meditation, specifically like when dealing in, with the hindrance in meditation, is that. Just bringing awareness to becoming aware of it is actually really already enough to disable the hindrance, as it were, to, to, to dissolve it. Often, not always, obviously, but sometimes. Mm. And there's also a little bit, sometimes maybe sometimes of a conundrum because it's a, it's a hindrance that you know that impedes our awareness, or well, be the awareness um, that would kind of unarm or dissolve the hindrance. You know, with some of them that they are a bit um, there's a bit of a paradoxical conundrum, particularly with with loss and torpor or doubt. But maybe we start with with the first one, with with sensual desire, often that's really just what's needed. No, I'm thinking particularly of like if you're meditation and you just and something is not really quite going, you're not staying with your meditation object, the mind doesn't stay there, whatever, and you just see well, what's going on. And you just might notice that, oh, it's, it's sensual desire you know, in some specific form that you might detect. And often it's just, just noticing that and knowing that. You know? Particularly if other, other things are clear in your mind. Say if, if, you're, if you know what you 
why you're meditating and what you're doing or what you what you want. And if you're familiar with, say, the Buddhist teaching, if you contemplate it, you know, sense desire in general and what it's doing and what's, what its benefits are maybe and, and what its shortcomings are, you know, what's the way out of it and all this, you know, contemplate the Four Noble Truths, then in meditation sometimes we only need to detect, oh, this is actually what's happening, to put it into perspective and to allow ourselves to actually let go of it. Because then we just know, all oh, right, uh, this is what's happening and obviously this is not, you know, what I'm really interested in right now, you know, so I just move back to what I'm doing. And that's, you know, one way in which it also primarily appears, like say in the, in the main, you know, one of the meditation suttas, that discourses that we use, or why perhaps it appears in the four the satipatthanas, you know, it appears that the five hindrances are actually the first list of dhammas in, in, the, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. No? Those of you, you've, you, you beware of the four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of the, the body, the mindfulness of uh, feelings, um, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, um, then mindfulness of chitta, of the heart, the mind, and the last one is the, the, the foundation of, uh, fourth foundation of mindfulness, uh, uh, the uh, mindfulness of, of dhammas. There's also a bit of controversy precisely about how to interpret this last one because it basically contains this, this whole list of all kinds of, um, well, quite a number of, of lists that appear generally in the Buddhist teachings. You know. Um, so it has been interpreted in various ways, you know, usually just you know, one way in just contemplating the, the teachings or, or various aspects and how to um, examine the nature of our experience. But some people say actually originally, um, I would think that the only lists in the fourth foundation of, of mindfulness would have been the five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment. You know, it's a specific way actually, and in that, in that order, actually the five hindrances is still the first list. And it, that would make sense in terms of attending to them almost in a sequential order as one way in which actually to develop our meditation and come and, and develop actually concentration through the foundations of mindfulness. And in this case, the fourth one. So you first deal with the five hindrances, which you're supposed to be doing. And when you've dealt with them, then you develop the seven factors of enlightenment. You know? And so if you look into the, the Satipatthana Sutta and, and that the practice of mindfulness of the five hindrances, there's always a certain sequence to it. And there's three steps. And with all those five hindrances, it's the first one just to be aware of the causes, or become aware of um, finding out about the causes that, that, that cause the arising of a hindrance. Then second, um, to find out about the causes that come to the, um, um, that contribute to the cessation of a hindrance allowing to cease, and the third one then to the causes to put in place for it not to arise in the future. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's the fourfold sequence. You know, the first one is really just to become aware that's there, and then you see there's, a, there's an investigation into the causes of them and, in, and how to actually allow to cease. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a simple uh, contemplation of them, but there's a, there's, a, there's a practice involved in them and, and to, to overcome the five hindrances. But the first one, as I said, is always the first step is the just becoming aware of it, you know, bear witnessing awareness and see what happens. You know. And that can be the that's 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 of course that's that's and that applies in general in our practice, whether in formal meditation or say in, in during daily life in your contemplation. I mean, that's what we often be we talk about, you know, about the de- when we talk about developing Awareness, strengthening mindfulness in formal meditation as a, as a goal, say, as, as, a, as a, yeah, an objective in meditation. So that our capacity to use that quality and to abide in it gets strengthened. No? Uh, similarly, about formal meditation is like going to the gym, you know, training your muscles, and then that's not just it. Then actually you probably want to use them. And maybe you just want to show off. I don't know. Um, well, every, every simile is limited as well, isn't it? But I say in this case, the idea is, of course, then you apply that, you use that in, in daily life, and actually difficulties come up you know, when anger arises or sensual desire arises. And then sometimes it's just that. That's always just the first step, and that's sometimes enough. You become aware of it, 
And when you become aware of it, then you also become aware of, you know, that possibility of awareness as a refuge, which is actually the way out, as it were, you know, the window that opens towards freedom. You know, if you if you if you take it into the larger context of the contemplations of the of the four noble truths, you know, which would be the second which, which would be the, the, the second one part of the second step. If just awareness is not not enough, then we're going to have to do some, maybe some investigation. You know, why why not? What's happening? What is actually holding this desire in place? You know, where do I need actually to put pay attention in order to loosen this up, you know, to unlock it, to allow it to cease? You know? So as a, as, a, as a general kind of deeper, say, the contemplation, investigation in Dhamma, then with, with sensual desire, we, we have the, the Four Noble Truths. You know, we can investigate the, uh, where does, you know, what, 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 what is desire? How does it operate? Where, where does it come from? What does it do to my mind? In which way does it lead to freedom? Or does it, does it lead to lasting satisfaction? Or, you know, what are the limitations? You know, how does it, you know, in, in the context of Four Noble Truths, you know, how, how, how it fuels this this wheel of samsara, you know, the hamster's wheel in which we kind of go after one, you know, one experience after another you know, in, in order to satisfy something in ourselves. What is it that, that needs satisfaction? You know, what is it that doesn't feel complete and so forth? You know, investigating that way. And to see in this in this particular context with a with if a desire turns up, if, if that's the contemplation that we that we're practicing we notice there's the desire. You know, how does it feel in the body? What does it tell me? And, the, and here is also the awareness of the desire. And awareness of the desire is not desire, isn't it? It's not desiring, it's just aware. So there's this, this opportunity, this possibility of just being with that space. You know. It gives us a, a different possibility. You know. The desire tells us something, you need this. It pushes, doesn't it, or pulls. Uh, wants you to do something. If I if I actually able to just become aware of it, and if that's strong enough, that can that I can actually establish myself I, I, strongly enough in that awareness that I get actually a, a perspective, I get a break, I get a possibility then to contemplate whether it's actually useful or harmless or harmful to follow a particular desire, and I'll be able to contemplate the nature of awareness itself and how it might be possible to just you know, where does the desire lead me to and where does awareness lead me to? The awareness, of course, always leads me to the present moment, no? And to just be with what is right now, which part of it might be a desire, no? So what's wrong with just feeling a desire, no? Because if I believe the story, the desire tells me, go somewhere else to appease me or something. Yeah. Awareness might just say, oh, this is desire, it feels like this. So you don't want the piece of chocolate or new car that the desire says, but you just want the desire. You just be with the desire. Just be with the desire. That's good enough. That's the reality right now. So you see that it takes you to a different, a different, into a different direction. It takes you into what is actually right now and in a way in, in which we can already be complete and content right now with, what, with, with whatever is happening right now. That's that's a possibility, no? That's there, and that is we can we cannot notice. We might not be able to actually um, stay in there, stay with that, you know, release our the, the tensions of desire really in, completely in that awareness. But we can become aware of that possibility. No? So then we notice there's a choice in which we can which way to incline, you know, we, that we can work it. We can notice that that certainly in that awareness itself, that awareness is. Ne- it's necessarily just going to be peaceful. No? It's just going to be here. No? But of course, then there's work that needs to be done in order to actually, you know, rather than moving out with a, the with a desire, allowing all things to move in you know, to presence, to be here now, you know, to gather our energy back to where we are. And that's something that we can that that we do, or we can do, of course, in our in any time in our daily life, you know, wherever things hit us, or of course, more specifically. Um, in uh, meditation, in formal meditation. Mm. And perhaps usually in formal meditation it might be more s- simple in that sense. Like if I put myself the task of just be with the breath, then I can just see, well, that's what, you know, I don't have to solve 
my relationship to, to desire once and for all right now in order to, to you know, deal with the hindrance now in this meditation. You know, but for this half an hour, maybe I have decided I just want to stay with the breath. So then if you know, some desire takes, sensual desire tends my mind, puts my mind out from there, I can just recognize that and say, well, you know, this is not really the music that we wanted to listen to at this point. And we can just recognize that and maybe then, aha, put it in, into that context and then say, aha, you know, I want to go back to the, to the breath rather than following the story. Particularly the, the development of calm, then we can actually see this this, this uh, attachment towards uh, sensuality or desire is really any kind of sensual desire, any kind of involvement with with, ex, with, with sense experience. And in, in, in the same way, then actually aversion or ill will is just uh, another manifestation of that. Just in the you know, with, a, with a negative with a negative prefix. <laughs> it's a ne- negative form of desire, no? So they usually go together. No, like whatever can, can be like desire for comfort. No, if I've got desire for comfort and I've got discomfort coming up in the body, then you know that might push and pull on my mind. So I'm not staying with my meditation object and just try and I'm just keep moving towards trying to be more comfortable and fiddle around with my body. Or, I, or it's just the, the aversion to discomfort. It's just the other side of that, you know, moving away from discomfort. And then I keep moving around, and so I become restless. And so one, you know, hindrance feeds another. Mm-hmm. But it's the same as everything. Like if I just, just noise, the... Uh, uh, the person next to me in meditation making a lot of noise or the neighbor starting the lawnmower or a bird singing too loud you know, just notice that being distracted by that it's, it's just a form of just noticing that this is actually in, in any of that is a re- refined form of the hindrance of sensual desire of you know, being involved actually being interested in the, the, the sense realm of our experience you know, we, we are attached there that's why it, make, that's why it is um, disturbing our meditation. And it can be inclining towards or as a second hindrance and aversion, just just, um, inclining away from it. So we can just notice that and maybe just move beyond. If not, then we have to reflect in that way. And in a a specific way, you know, if it just comes up, say, in your meditation, and which doesn't have to be discursive, you don't have to tell us give us Dhamma talks about, you know, the nature of desire and all that. I mean, you've all heard that probably many times. Uh, it's sometimes really just listening to it, bringing in an inquiring uh, mind to it and inquiring into the nature. You know, why is this, like asking ourselves questions, you know, why is this particular sensual desire or aversion so invasive, you know, why is it such a problem? You know, what is underneath it? You know, what, what is it that keeps it in what, what is it that I don't know about it that keeps it in place? You know, why, why does it stay in place against our better knowledge? Good Buddhists, we have contemplated all this, and so we, we should think, oh, we should just see this and put it aside and keep going with our meditation. But often enough, of course, those things, they just don't behave themselves, you know. In that way, so it's probably because there's something, you know, specific there that we that we haven't seen clear enough. You know, that 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 keeps uh, those hindrances in place. You know, in spite of our better knowledge, you know, even when we pay attention to it and and have the right right thoughts about it, the right knowledge about it. So there's no point then to to just keep thinking, thinking, thinking about it, or just trying to push it away. We just maybe just going to have to bring again. We have to bring more awareness towards it. And how do you do that? You precisely, that's how, how you know, sati and, and dhamma vichaya are to work, work together in that way. We, we, we bring our attention to it, mindfulness, and then we inquire, we bring a question to it, our interest. That's dhamma vichaya there. And it's not having a lot of information. It's, it's, it's being willing and, and humble enough to be with one's not knowing, to recognize there's something we don't know about it. And so we ask. Just bring in the question. And then bring your attention towards this. Where do you feel uh, in your body? And how does it feel, you know, that particular hindrance, the aversion, the ill will, the desire? 
How does it feel? And what, what, what is it you know, in there that makes it so difficult? Or what is it, what is underneath it that I don't know yet huh? um, that keeps it in place? And then we just, we just listen to it you know, and see whether maybe the, the experience itself is going to give us more information. It's going to start to talk to us. It's, it's certainly a way of, of investigating which you see that those two things go together and don't have to be mutually exclusive. You know? Stillness, quietness of mind and investigation. You know? So it doesn't have to be much movement that we invest there. You know? We don't have to dabble with things. We just locate them, notice them, become as aware of them as we, as we can say in the body and then drop a question in there. Venture towards the edge of where we know knowledge and then just listen, you know, listen a bit more deeply to it and see whether it might start to talk to us. You know, often those things don't talk to us good enough because we don't pay close enough attention, really. We don't listen enough. You know, we're too busy trying to meditate uh, and, and, and say, be with our breath or something. We, we don't really want to deal with the sensual desire, the aversion, or the, you know, the, the, various, the variations on, on the, the specific themes, you know, or the restlessness, you know, you just want to go past it. You don't want to be with the doubt, we want to be with our breath, you know, we try to ignore it or something. Or sometimes we just really going to have to pay attention there then. Well, first, we notice, and that's always a rule, you know, if you just notice it, say, okay, you put it aside, go back to a meditation office, then it's fine. Simple, that you keep going. But if it doesn't work, if it keeps coming in, keeps coming up, then it, that means you're going to have to pay attention there. You know? So that's the way. the way. Then instead of just trying how to focus on your breath or whatever, you then start to focus on the particular hindrance. Now, and that is, a, that is a way in which actually a hindrance, what seems to be a hindrance to our meditation, can be can actually food for our contemplation. You know, and where we start to actually develop wisdom, where we learn more about ourselves, where we learn more about meditation, where we learn more about the mind you know, and how it works, you know, precisely by those um, apparent you know, or obstacles. So we shift our attention and in, in, the, in the same way, which like paying attention to the breath is a way of listening to the breath in order to find out about the, the experience. So we start to listen to the hindrance, you know, take an interest in it. You know, make that your meditation. No, by asking good questions, trying to investigate. And, um, well, see where it leads you. And then sometimes that's the thing. We, then sometimes we find out, of course, that sometimes they, they lift almost like wheels and, 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 and show their connections you know, to whatever they, they are connected to, like why this, kind of this anger tends to manifest again and again. You know, there might be something underneath that fuels it, you know, the same. Or why you keep being pulled towards sensual desire. Even that you know that's it's stupid, but it's you know what, what is it that fuels it? You know? We not, don't find out if you don't ask and listen and be patient with it. You know, keeping willing to be informed by them. And the same applies with to the other hindrances, um, which perhaps might be a bit less straightforward. What was the third one? Well, that's something. The third one is the most. I find it was often the most difficult one, you know, sloth and torpor, because that's precisely when we don't have way, you know, it's, it's the same like trying to get out of um, depression by meditation. Uh, the problem is that it's, you, you lack the motivation in the first place, and that was part of what depression is about, you know, that you don't get any motivation going. No. And same with sloth and torpor. I mean, you know, probably from your experience, if you fall into that, it's very difficult because... You, you're lacking the, the energy or, or clarity to meet it in the first place. Well, that's a difficult one to deal with. And interesting enough, it's often perhaps counterintuitive. Often what happens is we try to struggle with it if, you, if you're afflicted by it. Try all kinds of ways in, in forcing ourselves to wake up. And the, sometimes, I don't know, sometimes maybe that works for a time. But the problem is that it is, of course, that... Well, again, sometimes it's just a non-starter because <laughs> you're too slothful or torporous to, to really come up with a good, with, you know, to bring up the energy to struggle against it in the first place. So it might be a nice idea, but it, you know, don't even get started. If you do, then of course you create more conflict, which consumes energy. No, and often sloth and torpor. The problem is there's not enough energy there in the first place, or the energy, or the problem is that there's energy that's blocked already. 
So you just, you just wear yourself out even more by trying to fight against loss and torpor. Mm-hmm. I guess we have to come to a place where we, where we find out really what's underneath this loss and torpor that feeds it and puts it there, particularly if it's, if it's a recurring problem in our meditation. So we have to be quite creative and skillful to get there, you know, if we don't have the clarity in the first place to, to actually see through it. Interesting candidates are often that sometimes there is, of course, that can be other conflicts underneath it. There can be kind of unacknowledged anger or, or inner turmoil or, or conflicts that we don't want to see underneath it, which we cover over by just, you know, one way in which the, the mind, of course, um, habitually deals with that kind of suffering or conflict is by just by denying or ignoring in one way of doing the particular meditation can be through loss and torpor just goes to sleep in order that you don't have to see no? or in an internal conflict. So, and sometimes it's, it's just because we are tired. No? And particularly as, as lay people, I guess, you might have quite busy lives and a lot of things to deal with and then you come to meditation, you might just be tired. And so, of course, loss and torpor sets in. And there can be physical tiredness as well. So, Sometimes it's interesting. One advice kind of can be actually sometimes this is first of all it's actually to drop, stop resisting it, and that's what I mean. Sometimes it seems to be counterintuitive because you think we've got the good intention. I want to meditate now and be clear and calm, and all oh, there's this loss and torpor, and of course I resist it. You know, as all with all the hindrances, defilements, the first thing is you really don't want to be with them, and that's a funny paradox in a way because if the way to deal with them is, first of all, of course, to be fully aware of them. If, you don't, if you're not willing to be with them, how can you learn about them? If you don't learn about them, how can you go past them? No? And yet, with all those kind of things, usually our first reaction is sloth and torpor or doubt is another one. You know, I don't, you know, we think something is going wrong. If I'd be practicing right, I wouldn't be experiencing this. So give me the trick, the truth to get out of this. Now, usually the trick to get out of this is to go into it first. Because this is the actuality of your reality. This is what's real for you right now. So what is it? Go into it. Be with it more fully, actually, so that you actually start to understand what it, what it is. Then, you know, you can come past it. The way out is always the way through, you know. And so with loss and torpor, counterintuitively, that means that sometimes you really just stop resisting it. And even if that means that actually you fall asleep. Initially. No, because usually if you fall asleep, you do, you do wake up afterwards. <laughs> and I mean, you, you, you experience, you know, experiment with that in, in, in your practice. You know, it's, it's not there are no standard recipes that, that work in, in, in every case. But it can often be the case. Like, I, like sometimes, for example, with the, I notice, with the, like in, in, in monastic life, we have this thing about this is one meal a day, you know. Well, actually it's two, you know, because we have quite a good breakfast. But then... And then we have, you know, this one big meal at the middle of the day. And then, of course, that does something to your system, isn't it? The energy goes into your belly to, um, to digest, and it goes out of the brain, you know, and you become a bit slothful and torporous, you know. So that's why one of the traditional, you know, classic remedies that the Buddha recommended in the Sutta against sloth and torpor, you know, to the bhikkhus is, you know, don't eat so much, you know. It might be that you're slothful and torporous because you're eating too much, <laughs> But, well, it's also to see that this is, this is, of course, a natural movement that usually, you know, around 12 o'clock or so my mind doesn't tend to be as, as clear by then at, you know, 6 o'clock in the evening. Hmm. But then often if, if I then try to resist it or fight against it, you know, this is the principle I actually use up more energy and actually become just, you know, I might develop a version on top of it and, and I just get more um, you know, I drain more energy, so I will just get more tired. You know? Sometimes you might don't, not have any chance, you know, in the way if you then, if you say after the meal or something, and, and if, say in our case, if you go out for a dinner, we have to talk to people, well, you just have to deal with it in some way, you know. If you can, you just drink a strong cup of cup or coffee. Huh? So that helps, you know. That's, 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 that's another way of not really struggling with it. You just, you know, put some agent into the system which kind of puts the balance right you know? but in other ways so what I often notice like if I say if I, I, if I can I like to have an, a nap after the, after the meal it's quite interesting I often find it doesn't 
it doesn't have to be actually a, a, a you know a long sleep or something. If, if if I do fall asleep after meal and then sleep, uh, let's say for an hour, usually afterwards I don't necessarily feel actually good. You know, then I notice that was actually too much. And it's it's interesting how sometimes sometimes I don't even have to go to sleep at all. I just you know lie down and and rest and just don't engage the mind. And I can notice this very specific kind of energetic shift in the body. There's one point where the mind really kind of is like sinks down. If I really allow it to sink, it kind of pops back up, you know, out of it. And there's sometimes, and then I look at, at the clock, and it was just 10 minutes. I might not even actually have technically been asleep, but then the mind is actually ref- refreshed and much more clear. You know. And it's quite interesting. If, so if I, if I know, knowing that, if I get the chance, and I, if I know I have to see people after the meal or something, then rather than trying hard to be, uh, to stay awake and then just be, continuously locked in this attitude of resisting against, which tires me on more, if I get a chance to just disappear for 20 minutes, you know, so give me 20 minutes and I just allow the mind to just dip into that for 10 minutes and I come out and I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And that is actually the same that can happen actually in, uh, also in meditation, you know, if, if you just try it out. Or if you're on meditation retreat, often you've got problem with loss on top on, on say, a 10-day retreat, 7-day retreat or something. Often that happens, say, in the beginning because there's an accumulated tiredness of your life from before. And if you then resist it and struggle against it, you just keep it there, locking it in place because you're putting up a fight and you're actually locking your energies tight shut. Whereas if you just go with it and allow yourself just to be slothful, torporous, even go to sleep in your meditation on the first day, you might actually find out that the mind bounces back afterwards, you know, gets a little rest, and then on the second, third day, actually, suddenly you wake up, and then you're really awake. Uh, restlessness and, and worry, same principle as with the other ones, of course. Noticing, first of all, that it's there, bringing awareness to it. Sometimes that's all that you need to do, you know, you're shifting around on your cushion and, and struggling and what's happening on something, you just think, oh, right, it's restlessness, okay. Or practice just being willing to be with restlessness. Sometimes that just settles it. If it doesn't, just investigate, look into it. What is this restlessness about? You know, what, what are the causes? Are they mental? Is, does it come from worry? Or is it just physical restlessness? Hmm. And then, well, the investigation might actually come, bring to light what we actually need to know in order then to shift. And sometimes that will invite you to to put in just a simple kind of uh, measure that, that will deal with the, with, with the problem. Like, say, with, with loss and torpor, sometimes, of course, there are things like that you can do, as, as you know, classic. If you are tired or something and you, you want to meditate, then maybe sitting meditation is not the right thing. Do walking meditation instead or standing meditation. Try some more active form of meditation or have a cold shower, those kind of things, you know. If you know then that's something you can do. With restlessness, sometimes I find is is to recognize again that there is, uh, that to a certain extent there's also natural, no? Particularly when we talk about meditation. Now the mind, usually, at least the untrained mind, is uh, naturally restless because it's active, it's curious, no? It wants to know, it, it, it moves towards things, it, it likes to think about things. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, because it is active and curious, that's how we learn also. No? That's how we got to where we are. That's how we became human beings and didn't remain amoebas or something. And also the body, obviously having bodies, bodies, they need some, you know, that's, it's, it's in the body, isn't it? There's bodily energy. It wants to move and, and be exercised. No? So sitting still in meditation and making the mind still and quiet is not naturally what comes natural to this body and mind. You know, that all of us know that when we, when we knew that how it was when we started to meditate. You know, after a while, we get the, hopefully we get the taste of it and it becomes easier. You know? And then for some people it becomes more easy, for some less, and then we might have to look at specifics of why, you know, we, if we find we have a specific problem with restlessness. But then again, particularly if you do more meditation, if you go on a longer meditation retreat, then again it's naturally that it comes up. If you used to do an hour of meditation every day, you might got the taste for how that's really, is actually can be quite nice and it's useful. But then if you do a seven-day retreat, it's, again, it's, it's just natural that after a while, unless you get into deep concentration, 
Somehow then that might obviously not happen, but if you don't, then it will be natural that sooner or later the energies of the body and the mind will demand action, no? Movement. So then that's, again, it's the first step. We recognize it's there, and also it's not that necessarily something is wrong, no? This is natural. And then we can look at what is this specifically about? Is there something I can do about? And with restlessness, for example, I find one of the things is really engaging that energy, you know, recognizing that active energy of the mind and of the body is not in itself a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing if I'm fixed on some idea about that I should be in samadhi rock solid and at will and now. You know, then, of course, the restlessness becomes a problem. But if, if I put that aside and just realize, okay, this is a natural thing, then I'd be interested in, well, what, how do I engage this, uh, this energy, which manifests as restlessness, restlessness in a constructive way. And so in one way, so it's just allowing it some movement, but keeping it on a leash. Hmm? So I remember specifically when I was living in New Zealand, different from here, there I had a hut for myself up on the hill, the one highest up actually, a lot of time for myself. And I also was on retreat there on time, so I had nothing to do, just meditate and meditate and meditate. And I did a lot, meditate, meditate, meditate. <laughs> I didn't always get necessarily very concentrated. But say sometimes, of course, it was better, better sometimes less. But one thing I noticed after a while, I had problems with restlessness. You know? And I just noticed, well, part of it was really I, just, I was just sitting there and sitting and sitting. And as I, my mind didn't go towards you know, the, the, the bliss of, of deep samadhi, then after a while, the energy would just get a bit stale in the body. So there was just a very natural physical element of it. So I thought, well... Rather than just fighting it, going against it, pushing it down, and then, you know, waiting until somebody, I can't control it anymore, and it explodes on me, allowing the body, say, some exercise, but keeping it on a leash, as it were, you know, allowing the dog some exercise. I, I, when I was a layperson, uh, I, had a, I had a German shepherd at some point, and that thing was restless and had a lot of energy. And if I didn't take that dog for a very, very good walk or run through the hills where I was living, it would really be trouble in the evening. I wouldn't have a peaceful evening with the dog. But if I would take it on a good walk through the day and on the day, then in the evening it would just sit down, lie down by the fire and just snore and there would be no trouble at all. So I knew what to do with those dogs in order to have peace. You know? And the mind's a bit like that. So then, well, I learned that when I was on retreat there. You know, rather than being idealistic and trying to push through the restlessness and force myself to be calm, well, so I just, okay, let's do something. But within a boundary that's still skillful, so they would go for a walk, but for a little walk, you know, inside the monastery, would go through the, through the woods, you know, might take an hour, look at the trees and the birds and, and walk about and be happy. Um, and come back to my heart, and then I could sit down and sit again, and I was much more at ease and, and calm. You know? The body got some exercise, the mind had a little bit of distraction, and then was fine, settled, so then I could meditate again. And so you, you can regulate those things. You know? Same with the with restlessness of the mind. Well, so that's why in meditation you can contemplate. You know? Use your mind, think. But then think about Dhamma. You know, use the energy that way, and then if you, when you have thought enough, then you can go back to uh, just go to the breath or the body, or do something, but do something skillful, you know, which is and where you can still use some meditation, just do walking meditation, go for a little walk. If you, if you ignore that, if you don't see that, then sometimes we try to resist the restlessness until we can't, and then suddenly oh, we just give up. And then rather than going for a little walk, we just we go to town again and have three cups of coffee and then go to the cinema and, then, and so forth. Or we, we, we read a 500-page novel, you know, <laughs> and then try again afterwards. You know, so that's you know, just trying to work with that skillfully. And, and remember, restlessness is one of those fetters which only the arahants are completely free of restlessness. This can go down to a, a, a very refined degree, you know. but it's natural that we experience it, and we're just going to have to engage that energy. And uh, doubt, I- again, is an interesting one. I think the most direct one, and see, one is to really be interested in see, investigate what, what does it actually feel 
to be stuck on doubt. And why is it a problem? Investigate it. Again, our natural reaction is we, we don't want doubt. We want clarity, isn't it? So if we're caught in doubt, we try to get out of that situation. No? We try to think ourselves out of it or try to hunt for the information that settles our, uh, our doubt. And sometimes that's all it, it needs, and it's simple. You know, we just look into a book, find the answer to your question, and that settles the doubt. Or you go see the teacher, whatever, you know. And, you know, that's a classic answer, you know. And that's fine, but what if it, that doesn't happen? You know, you, you, you all know that. You know, if it says you, you, you read the book and then, ah, right, it's settled, and then you sit down again and then, yes, but what did that, that other book said something else? You know, and off you go again to the library, read another book, and it just goes on and on and on and on. You can never settle it. Then you just realize there's something else going on inside that you have to look at, you know, that keeps that doubt uh, in place. And that's, again, this is just something, you know, like the same way I talked about the other, uh, in the other hindrances. We just need to then investigate, ask ourselves, listen into it, find out what is underneath it. And it's often something where we need to actually find out more about ourselves, about what and who we are, what are, are really, what is really important for us, what are our priorities. Uh, that is what often that's not uh, the question, it's not the, the looking for the information does not solve our doubt because we often don't look on the level where the answer, the information that we need actually lies. Yeah? It's an illustration if, if you have two options of doing something, you know. If, um, well, I've just been with my, with my parents. don't know whether that's a good example now. But, uh, well, I just spent time with my parents and, and uh, to, you know, to a certain extent, well, if you're with your parents, do what your parents do. To a certain extent, of course. <laughs> I just try to, um, I certainly keep to try and respect my precepts you know, as a monk as well. But so one thing of what my parents do, they watch television. My parents have got, they each got their own television, which is very good for harmony at, at home because my father likes to look different kind of programs than my mother. You know, my, my father, for example, likes to watch football. Uh, my mother likes to watch soap operas and, <laughs> and movies, you know. So then my father would be in his, maybe in his place, watch the sport, and my mother would be in, in, the, in the living room and, and watch a, a movie. And so I, I could have a choice, you know. I could go and watch the football with my father, or I could stay with my mother and watch the movie. I guess I could also go into the kitchen and meditate, you know, whatever. sure enough. Might be more skillful, but I confess that sometimes I rather... Um, just stay with my parents and watch. If my interest really is on that level of movies and football, if that's really where, where, where my real interest, what's really important for me is, then I might really get into a tiss that if at one point there's actually a, a football game on, at the same time there's a movie that I might want to see. You know? So then I have a choice. You know? Now, should I go and see the football game with my father or should I see the movie with my mother? And the, mo the movie might be a really good movie, you know, that, that actor and uh, that director and I haven't seen it, and that might be really... But this is a really, that might be a really in interesting game, you know. Should I go there? And I might go back and forth to try to decide, you know. But if I... If actually I know what's really important for me is not really football or a movie. It might hold no interest for me at all or a very limited interest. But I'm much more interested in actually learning about my mind... Uh, developing mindfulness, and I know I, well, I can do one thing or the other. It doesn't really matter, you know. And it doesn't really matter in the end whether the movie is good or whether it's bad. In any case, I can develop mindfulness with it and, and, and notice my reactions and learn from it or something, you know. If that's my interest, you know, then I won't be caught in the same way. No? Uh, that's something, something that we need to that we need to know, uh, that we need to investigate. You know, why we are stuck. On, on, on some question, you know, in, in, in doubt, not knowing what to do. Mm. And also, of course, uh, in, in the more basic sense, the fact that that's something to do with it might be uh, our addiction to certainty, that we don't want to... And, and why are we addicted to certainty? Maybe because, you know, depending on the situation, we don't want to make a mistake or something, which is not, again, it's not necessarily bad, isn't it? It, it means that we care. No, if there's an important decision to do, we want to make the right decision because we might not want to hurt somebody. No, is that what's behind it? Uh, or we just might want to make sure that we get the best deal, you know, and so then we get, you know, is this the best deal or is that the best deal, you know? 
So that's where the investigation is. Is that really what's important to you, or what is it what's really important? And then we can, of course, find out and we see if where we actually hold on, where we are, where we are hooked. You know? Because we know, of course, if we know that, you know, what the Dhamma is that we can never really be certain, of course. You know? Life is uncertain from one moment to the next. We don't know what's going to happen. And we don't know. Uh, we can never know whether what we do, no matter how much uh, we think about it and plan it, that our action is going to be the right action. You know? And we only, only afterwards are we going to be more we will know more. You know, even if we make, what afterwards we know we make a mistake, you know, two weeks later we might look back at what we did and we say, no, it was actually not, was actually quite a good thing that we made a mistake because in the bigger picture <laughs> it brought us actually the better outcome and so forth. Hmm? Yeah, we know that, that life is, is uncertain and if we, if we really, if, if in our practice we, we go you know, deep in that way, then, then we... The, le- the, the more we know that, the less we're going to be, be stuck and paralyzed by the sense of doubt because we're going to be less addicted to the sense of needing to have certainty and be more trust into just doing the best that we can to whatever feels right for the knowledge that we have now, not to be careless, of course, but then we, we just go forward and then you always trust that we, that we somehow we're going to, whether it's, you know, it looks like a mistake or the right, right thing, we're going to learn from our experience and, and, and keep working with it. So those are um, just various ways in which we can just work creatively, constructively with our hindrances, first of all, just by acknowledging them and then just turning them actually to, into food for contemplations. Yes, yeah, so I finish there for tonight. And thank you for your attention.